Hey there, welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. One of the most fascinating parts of working on this show is getting to learn a little bit more about how our favorite software and product teams are working behind the scenes so that hopefully their best practices can challenge and help inform the way that your team might work too. This week, Brian Donahue, one of Intercom's own directors of product management, was able to sit down with Asana's Jackie Bavaro to do just that. Jackie's the head of product management for one of the fastest growing collaboration software tools out there today. Asana now claims more than 25,000 paying customers, and that includes a few teams here at Intercom. Yet when Jackie originally joined the company in 2011, the product wasn't even available yet. Going back a bit, Jackie was a product manager at Google and a program manager at Microsoft, so she's helped guide product decisions at all ranges of scale. And somehow in her spare time, she managed to write Cracking the PM Interview, a book all about how to land a PM job in tech. In her chat with Brian, Jackie walks us through the product development process at Asana, We really try to go with a hypothesis-driven approach. So we'll try to understand what a customer's needs are, really focus on the parts that we're sure we need to start off with, and then start to see what needs to be added on top of that. The value her team finds in product forums, a weekly meeting where they can collaborate and learn from senior leadership. For us, the main goal is mentorship, because we want to build high-quality products in a scalable way and how our product team works with and aligns with product marketing. PM and marketing and PR will get together and talk about the story of, of what we're building and get on the same page there and talk about, you know, what do we think will be important for the success here? What story are we trying to tell? Does that change what features we, we need to include or how we need to build them? As always, if you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But now, let's hand things over to Brian, who's in the studio with Asana's Jackie Bavaro. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think one of the fun things about product management and product managers is how varied the backgrounds are and the roots are into product management. Uh, tell us a bit about your path to becoming a PM. Yeah, so I followed the uh, fairly traditional path to becoming a PM. I double majored in computer science and economics, and then I got a PM internship while I was still in college. So I consider myself to be one of the lucky ones. I had a friend who had done the job a previous summer, and he straight up told me that I had to apply to this job. Um, and if he hadn't really pushed me into it, I think I uh, I wouldn't have realized it was a good job for me. Right. And so you've worked with a bunch of different PMs. Uh, are there any backgrounds that you find are actually naturally suited to becoming a PM or maybe best suited to becoming a PM? Yeah. So I think to be a great PM, it's really important that you're a smart problem solver and that you love thinking about product and design problems. And I've also found that people who are makers, so people who have built something or they've started something, uh, tend to do really well as PMs. But beyond that, I think that the more diversity of perspectives you can get, the better. Um, And that's why, like, right now we're actually hiring for an APM class and we have no prerequisites because we believe that having people from many different backgrounds will help us build better products. Interesting. So you're really purely looking for aptitude. Yep. Right. You've also worked as a PM at uh, Microsoft, at Google, at Asana. Do you think yeah. each company has like their own distinct slant on, on what a PM is, on what PM should be? 
Yeah. And so um, a few years ago, I actually wrote a book on uh, applying to different companies as PMs called Cracking the PM Interview. And so I took my own experience. I talked to other people and the companies are really wide and varied. But if I was going to generalize, I'd say that uh, at Google, it's very engineering driven and very unstructured. So as a PM, they'll throw you into the deep end and they'll tell you it's your job to figure out what your team needs. Whereas at Microsoft, it's very PM-driven and very structured. So there'll be multiple PMs on a team. You'll be learning from other PMs. And PMs are responsible for like very structured specs and all of the product decisions in their area. And so at Asana, we kind of tried to consider what we like from Google and what we like from Microsoft and uh, also working with people from Facebook. And so at Asana, you know, because we love clarity, we like wrote it out really clear. So at Asana, PMs are responsible for picking the right problems to go after defining the goals, and determining if the solution meets the goals. So PMs aren't responsible for designing the solutions or deciding how things are built. That's, you know, designers and engineers. And that makes the role at Asana a little bit more high level and strategic. And that's true even for brand new PMs who come in. And that's interesting. You kind of frame it as a a strategic one there. How much do you want your PMs really in the details of, of building and delivering the product? Yeah, so uh, PMs work really, really closely with engineers and designers. So a lot of our PMs will meet with their designer every single day and they'll brainstorm and they'll give lots and lots of feedback. So it's, it's not that the PMs won't get into the details, but it's clear lines of responsibility. So the PM really has to decide what are we going after with this? What problems do we have to solve? And they have to be able to come to an agreement with their designers to let the designers be responsible for the solution. So the PM can always say like, hey, I don't think this is meeting our goal of being easy to use, but they they shouldn't really be going in and um, or they wouldn't be going in and saying like, move this button over here. Mm-hmm. Have you found with uh, PMs on your team that you've worked with and in your own experience like that working at those Zoom levels, whether you're zoomed into the details of the solution or the bugs that are happening versus zooming out to the higher level, what the problem we're focused on or even further what the strategy we're trying to work towards. Does that zooming in, zooming out, is that something that's a struggle in the teams you've seen? We've certainly felt it's a struggle for as uh, for our product managers. Yeah, so it's something that we try to build into our process. So we lightly sort of follow the double diamond model of of product development, where you first really focus on the problem and you do some expansive thinking around the problem, making sure that you're solving the right problem, because it doesn't matter how well you design something or how well you build it if you're solving the wrong problem. And then once we've narrowed in on the problem we want to solve, then we do another round of expansive thinking around what the possible solutions can be. So a lot of times you start off with one idea and you could just follow through and build that. But if you take the time to really generate more ideas, you'll come up with even better solutions. Something we were actually just talking about earlier today uh, at a team is like that problem definition state and whether it's like just at the start or is it something that you're continually iterating on? Do you find the understanding of the problem sometimes changes quite significantly as you're getting into a project? It can happen. It depends on like, uh, so one of the things that we're not that formalized at Asana is exactly how you have to order things or what things you can overlap. So some teams will do lots and lots of user research up front and then go on to, you know, designing and building. Whereas some teams will just start with an idea, start designing and start building it, try to get into customers' hands and do most of their research later. So for the the teams that are doing more research later, they'll often find new things and learn new things about the problem as they're going along. 
Um, other teams also can always find surprises. We always try to get our new features into customers' hands early. So either through a beta program or through A-B testing or through showing people paper prototypes, all of those different approaches. So yeah, so we definitely can learn new things about the product later on. But when we do try to do the research up front, I'd say a lot of times we're getting, you know, maybe 85% of it right. And we really try to go with a hypothesis-driven approach. So we'll we'll try to understand what a customer's needs are, really focus on, on the parts that we're sure we need to start off with, and then start to see what needs to be added on top of that. So that brings us right into scoping. So what you're talking about there is scoping. And it's something that every product management team in the world says, yes, scoping is critical. Um, But I think it's actually, it's kind of taken for granted. It's just like you must scope well. Like we actually found in our experience, we thought we were good at it. And then last year we found we had like walked backwards into big project mode. And we had to be Mm -hmm. very deliberate to get back into scoping small and sometimes actually writing down how we go about doing this. Have have you guys had any sort of similar place where you felt like you need to articulate in any way to your team or codify what it means to scope well? Yeah. So what we what we talk about on our team is that we really, when we're scoping, want to scope from the goals and we want to want to really start there. So when I started PMing, um, I knew that scoping was really important, but what I'd often do is figure out what the big, beautiful, full scoped release would be, and then prioritize all the work and then cut off the low priority things. And when I did it that way, the low priority things ended up being a lot of like polish, like an extra animation. Because I was like, well, that's not critical for getting the value. But the problem there is you end up with a feature that does a product that does a lot of different things, but isn't high quality. And so what we switched to doing is scoping from the goals. So saying that like, you know, there might be five different use cases that customers have, but let's pick one of them at first and then try to do that goal really well. And so that means that we'll have a solution that'll feel fully baked. It provides customer value. And then once we've done that one goal, then we can go on to the next, the next customer use case. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, the beta programs. And I think that that really helps with scoping because the team internally will set up several milestones. They'll say the first milestone is when can our team do internal dog fooding of this feature? So like, when is there something that we can like turn on for, for our own small team? Uh, then they'll probably have another milestone, which is when can we turn this on for everybody at the company to dog food internally? And then they'll have a milestone for when can we give this to our first friendly customers? And they will set that date for the first friendly customers, usually like months before the actual launch date. And when you have that milestone in mind, I think it does, it doesn't answer the question of how to scope, but it makes it very, very clear that you want to scope because you'll, you'll focus on what are the main things you need to learn from your customers and then what does the beta have to have so that you can learn that? Uh, and how, you mentioned like with scoping, you focus on one use case, focus on on building that, but building that mm-hmm. to a high quality, not skimping on quality to get broader coverage. How do you decide when you're done with that project, with that problem you're focused on? How do you decide how many use cases to cover? When have you done enough to move on to something else? Yeah. So a lot of times we are, uh, let's say for something like custom fields that we launched uh, last year, we had a a bunch of ideas of like several different use cases. So one use case we had in mind was being able to use Asana for bug tracking. Um, Another one was being able to use Asana for like agile sprints. And another one was to be able to use Asana for cases that you'd otherwise like set up a spreadsheet with lots of columns, you know, more ad hoc use cases. And so we prioritized those use cases in terms of like what we thought we could go after in order and had hypotheses about what features we would need. 
So we actually worked really closely with the user research team and the marketing team and the sales team to talk about what we would need to see from customers to feel like it was ready to launch. And, and for us, the big question was sorts, that it was, it was going to be more expensive to be able to sort by those custom fields than a lot of the other things. And so we were really, really, you know, me as a PM, I always like to ship early. So really wanted to see if we could ship without them. And we would work together as a cross-functional team to look at the feedback we were getting in from customers, look at the story that we could tell in the marketplace to see if there was like a real valuable use case that we could talk about that didn't include sorting. And as we were going forward, we were finding that, you know, sorting was number one request from customers. And we weren't finding any use case from the customers who were in the beta program where they were like, I love this. This works fine without sorting. Everyone said, like, this is good, but I really need sorting for it to be useful. And so that's how we realized that we really did need to include sorting in our MVP. Gotcha. And so that made you confident of the investment you had to make to get that to be properly useful. Yep. Something that, and you had a recent post on a how we build post, and I think we're always also curious to really get into the insides of how other companies work. And something that mm-hmm. you mentioned there was the product forum, which is interesting because yeah. I've, I've heard this from a uh, few companies seem to be having this now. So I'd love to hear more on the practicalities of how this product forum actually works. Like who's on it? How frequently does it meet? Give us a sense of the shape of this. Yeah. So uh, the people on product forum are our head of product and co-founder, uh, JR. Um, and then a representative from PM and user research and design. Um, and we have it every week. And it's usually, I think we have maybe two hours blocked off a week. But we'll, one of the things that we do really intentionally is if it ever starts to feel rushed, we'll extend the time. It's one of the most important processes we have at Asana. And how, like, how would you frame it? Because it could be viewed as, hey, this is the way we do approval for the key steps yeah. in a process, or this is the way we're actually trying to get people to learn about how mm-hmm. we think about product and uh, the learning yeah. is a huge value of it. Or it's also a way for leadership to stay involved in the details of what's actually happening. How do you frame it in your head of like the primary value of this forum? So I've been at other companies that have a product review, and it really is just a launch gateway at some other companies. Um, And I've been at ones where it is, you know, as fast as possible, can someone come in and tell you if you can launch or not? And they'll point at a bunch of things and say, you have to change all that and then go and launch it. And that's very much what we did not want to do at Asana. For us, the main goal is mentorship because we want to build high quality products in a scalable way. So we want to make sure that what we're getting out the door is high quality, But we want to make sure that all of the PMs and designers um, and engineers start to understand what our quality bar is and start to understand why we might think that one solution is high high quality and another one isn't. Um, And that's why we we put a a lot of effort into this and making sure that it doesn't have, uh, that doesn't feel very intimidating. Um, Although, of course, it can feel intimidating if it's like your launch review. But we try to make it really more about learning, make it feel a little bit more casual, focus on the positives, um, talk about the things that people did that worked really well and make it more of a discussion so that people can actually learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And is this something the teams actually request a review uh, or or Mm -hmm. a a slot at the forum or the people at the forum or is just certain steps in the process where it's expected? Uh, Yeah, so both. So there's there's a few checkpoints that uh, teams should go to. So if you're doing a big launch, you would go at the very beginning when you're setting those goals. So we talked about that double diamond. So once you're actually defining the problem, you would go in and talk about those goals uh, with the team to get everybody on board there. You could also go once you have designs and you want design reviews or design feedback. And finally, at the end, during uh, during uh, as a launch review. 
But so those are the like required steps for a large launch. But there's lots of times teams can come in more optionally just because they have an idea and they want to get early feedback on it or they want to discuss a, a tough trade-off they're making. And, and and how do you think it's perceived by the teams? Is it, you mentioned some might yeah. see it as stressful or is it seen as an opportunity yeah. and it's great when we can get a slot or, you know, how what's the sense? So we of? always make sure that we can get team slots. And yeah, the teams are the ones requesting the slots. And I would say that uh, the teams for the early check-ins, teams really, really love it. They've often come up and say that it was great to get directional feedback early and that a lot of times, like when we're giving feedback in product review, we're always trying to do it in terms of principles and frameworks and higher level company strategy. And so so teams will come back and they'll say, oh, I didn't realize how this could fit into the bigger picture in that way. So those we get really positive feedback from. And then I, I think teams are still a little bit intimidated by launch review because, you know, they're finally presenting all of their work. And I would say that you know, Sosana has a culture of empowerment and empowerment is really scary. So uh, one of the things that will happen is that at Product Forum, we won't tell people that they have to change something or we won't tell people how to change something. We won't say, you know, take this button and move it over here. Um, but instead, we might say, like, this this isn't up to our quality bar right now. That's launch blocking feedback. You need to improve it before you can launch. And that happens a little bit, but and it doesn't happen for every team at all. Um, but what's a lot more common is that, you know, we'll have a discussion and somebody from design will say that they they have one suggestion they might make and user research might have another and PM might have another and JR might have another. And sometimes our advice even conflicts and the uh, we don't resolve it for the PMs in, or the designers in that room. We give them that feedback and they have to decide what to do. And that's that's a lot of power. That's a lot of empowerment, but it can feel scary because the decision really is on them. And so we're always looking for ways to try to make that feel safer, to not take the optional feedback. Um, and one of the ideas we have is to really have people go over all that feedback with a PM buddy who can help reassure them that a lot of times the right way forward is not to do another iteration, but to say it's important to launch fast. And so that was great feedback, but we we're actually going to go ahead. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So we've talked a lot about process here, and um, process is such a balancing act. Like, in theory, process is only there to make us faster and make us better, but in practice, you know, it often feel, fails at both. Uh, it'd be great if you could share some of your stories of where you, you've tried to bring process that hasn't worked. 
Yeah. So I, I'm one of those people that leans like on the side of having too little process rather than too much process. You know, I've definitely been told by the team that they would rather have process, you know, for example, when two teams are working together rather than it just always be, Hey, work it out with each other. <laughs> but I think one of the places that I, that I found where I've had trouble with processes is that I've seen times when I glossed over the difference between big and small projects. So um, I did a post on our, like this on a product process and that's, that's like a good product process for the way we do um, large launches. But what I found is that on teams that were smaller, if there is a team that's doing lots of growth experiments, for example, that they weren't going to go through, you know, all 19 steps every single time. And so they knew they had to skip some of them, but because the process was designed for, for big projects, it wasn't clear to them which, which steps they could skip and which ones they shouldn't. And so that was really interesting for me to learn and, and something that we're now working on improving. And so we've done a bunch of changes around that process. So for example, instead of going to product forum, you know, cause that's once a week on Friday, if you have a small change, you can actually just go to your manager and your manager can approve it so that it can get out that day. Right. It's interesting. It's like, how do you bake in enough flexibility and adaptability to your process? You've mentioned a few times working with marketing. Uh, I want to try to move a bit out of process, which is always the temptation yeah. to talk about in, indefinitely. But I'm talking about uh, working with marketing teams. Um, at our Inside Intercom event, I talked about how we as a product team at Intercom worked with marketing and, and in the early days worked really poorly or absently with mm-hmm. marketing and, and really trying to get a lot better at that. And I mean, it's again, it's, it's like scoping, right? Everyone knows, of course, you should have the story clearly in your head of what you're building. But in practice, it's actually very hard to do. So it's not controversial to say you should build with the story clear in your mind. It's just hard to actually mm-hmm. do that thing. So I, I'm curious to hear about Adasana. Has this been something that you guys have done well or struggled with to actually have product and marketing working in lockstep together? I think, I think it varies. I think that we've had sometimes when we've had really good successes where product and marketing have been in line the whole time. And that's really nice. So um, an example of this was when we did the custom fields launch. So I mentioned already about how we were trying to decide if we wanted to have sorts and working cross-functionally with marketing and user research, we realized we needed them. But another thing that came up really well is, so we do these planning meetings twice a year. And we had the planning meeting that was going to be before, before the big launch for custom fields. And we were talking about how are we going to market this? What do we need? And going through that, we realized that uh, the biggest problem with marketing custom fields is that because it can be used for anything, it's hard for people to understand how they should personally be using it. And so we did uh, big group brainstorms with marketing, and they actually suggested that something that would be really effective would be to build pre-built templates that already had the custom fields in use so people could see, you know, and preview what it would be like to be using custom fields. And so we actually, that was more of a marketing-led feature. They really were the ones that convinced the rest of the team that that would be great to build. We built it, and we saw that even on its own, that those, those templates really were a big win. Hmm, interesting. And how, how do you structure yourselves with marketing? For example, is the PMM, the product marketing manager, actually going to stand-ups? Or, you know, how, how do you try to make that more of a genuine team? We don't usually have marketing at our stand-ups. We usually, so in our product process, we have a few different checkpoints where people do meet in with marketing. And then as part of when we get closer to launch, we have another, another set of checklists that we go through. So at the beginning, in that double diamond part, in the first part, we're actually defining the project. That's one time when we 
at the beginning before we've even defined the problem when we first start to work with marketing. And so uh, PM and marketing and PR will get together and talk about the story of, of what we're building and, and get on the same page there and talk about, you know, what do we think will be important for the success here? What story are we trying to tell? Um, and once we understand that story, does that change what features we, we need to include or how we need to build them? Hmm. And, and yeah, so in the ideal case, we have that meeting early and the teams have marketing and PM are really aligned on what we're going to build uh, all the way through. And then the marketing can stay up to date with what's happening on, um, we'll often use the uh, status reports inside Asana. Well, let's switch back to another post that you uh, wrote recently, which is around developing your product sense. I think something that we've found is like as, as team scales, your company scales, there seems to be this this inevitable desire for greater certainty on product decisions, which means mm-hmm. analytics that are p- providing a clearer direction or qualitative feedback that really almost makes a decision much closer to being, yeah, this is very clear. We can all, the whole team can get behind this very quickly. But in my experience, there's never that much certainty. And even though you have more mm-hmm. And more information, rarely do you have this clarity that we all seek. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how your team balances making the decisions, you know, based on your product intuition versus actually on real evidence. Yeah. So I think that product intuition is critical. I definitely don't think that if you're just trying to like, you know, run a million A-B tests and launch the ones that are win, then you're going to end up in, with a great product. But at the same time, I would say that even the very best PMs have the wrong intuition sometimes especially on a complex product like Asana. So Asana, there's complicated interactions between the team lead and the people on their teams. And because it's such a flexible product, there's sometimes people using the product in ways that the PMs didn't expect or didn't realize. And so I say that there have definitely been times when even our very best PMs will think that something is going to be a positive change. And when we run the A-B test, we see that it was negative. And when we like dig in, we understand why. We start to realize what the side effects were of the change that we hadn't really expected. So um, the way that, that we handle this at Asana and that we're, that we're sort of this developing, but something that we're really kind of moving to, is we want to distinguish between something that's a safety net A-B test and something that's a real experiment. So for most teams at Asana, they're building things that are based on like heavy user research. And so we have lots and lots of evidence from our customers and from the sales teams and from our customer success managers that there's a real customer need there and that we're building something that will help our customers. And so in that world, when we're building something like that, we still want to run an A-B test, but we're doing it as sort of a safety net A-B test to make sure we didn't break anything. Or sometimes we want to you know, measure the size of the win where you're like, we know this will be a win. We just want to see how big. But we're not running the A-B test to decide should we launch this or not because we're going to make the launch decision based, based on that product intuition and based on all of that customer research. But we also have teams that are that are more experimentally focused. And for those teams, you know, especially for example, if you're if you're changing things in the onboarding, there's really counterintuitive effects that happen in onboarding. So sometimes getting a user through onboarding as fast as possible is best, but sometimes it's actually better to slow them down so that they'll be set up better for the future. And so when you're doing those kinds of changes, it really is important to rely on evidence and understand what the silent majority are doing. Interesting. So there's really a good bit of variety on within your teams on how they approach this mm-hmm. balance. 
Another topic you brought up in the post on, on how you work was the voice of the customer. And you talked about uh, the really deliberate. I think there was actually another post by a colleague going in depth on on really how rigorous you guys are at, at trying to pull this from all the different sources to really provide a clear and well-integrated voice of the customer to the product teams. I was actually down in Sydney last week chatting to Sharif, a PM from Atlassian. He was talking about a similar setup that they had there, but he had this great phrase that was his big concern that resonated, which is like, he he feared about empathy removal for PMs when you've got all this very impactful data coming in, this aggregated customer data. Almost like the more successful the voice of the customer program is, ironically could in some ways distance the PM from that direct customer contact that really is where a lot of your gut comes from or your a lot of conviction comes from. Like what, when you guys, I'm sure you guys have a massive influx of, of feedback. How do you advise your PMs to really stay close to the, to their customers in a meaningful way amidst that kind of sea of information? Yeah. So at Asana, we're huge on anecdotes and direct customer feedback. One way that we do this is we have automated scripts that will send customer tickets and customer NPS responses and customer churn survey data to the PMs every week. So they'll get to see the actual written words of our customers. And beyond that, when we have the voice of the customer process, we'll generate a top 10 list and we'll form teams around that. But once the teams are formed, they'll go into research mode and go reach out to customers again. So they will go uh, sit in on user research sessions, meet directly with the customers, go on customer calls, go on sales calls, and make sure that they actually are talking directly to customers and getting to see the real customer words. So you're using kind of the data to help prioritize, but then ensure the teams are going in and talking directly to customers to really give the full picture of what those problems are. Yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we wrap up with an impossible question here, which is, how do you think the PM field will evolve in the next five years? Yeah. So I think that uh, the fundamentals of focusing on goals and defining the right problems will be around forever. But if I had to guess, the things that I think might be easier in the future would be things like gathering customer feedback, usability testing, QA, and uh, having cheap ways to validate problems. I think that that might get much easier. So for example, today, there's already things like Google surveys and usertesting.com where you can get really quick feedback on any hypothesis that you have. And I, I imagine in the future that will become even more popular so that PMs will be able to make even more informed customer-focused decisions. So the speed at which we'll get a lot more useful information will, uh, will speed up. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the barrier to entry. I'd say that there are definitely times today when a PM has an intuition and they'd love to talk to a real customer and validate it, but they had 20 different ideas that they had that day and they had to prioritize it. But in the future, I imagine that you might be able to take all those 20 ideas, really quickly get the feedback, and you won't be having to make as many guesses. So PMs in the future will have no excuses for not shipping great product. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen, why don't we wrap it up there, Jackie? Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. It was great fun. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Listener.